1: it's good to see all of you who are here with us in person. Want to welcome those of you who are joining us online. Happy Easter. He is risen. He is risen indeed. We're so glad to be able to celebrate that. If you were here with us on Good Friday, we, we ended the night with, with somber reverence and, and silence. And it was the room got dark because we wanted to sit in the reality of the heartache and the devastation of that day. And then we wanted to come here together and to sing and to clap and to be able to celebrate. And for those of you, since you're here for first service, sorry, those of you who are online. But those of you who are here in first service, we have the opportunity to have a, a short brunch together with Finger Foods after the service so uh, we're really excited to be able to have this day be a day of celebration that we remember that jesus really lived he really died he really came back to life and that really makes a huge difference in our lives today and so what we're going to do is we're going to, uh, I'm going to ask you to, to join me in a word of prayer in a moment. And then we're going to unpack a section of scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 if you want to follow along. If you brought your Bibles, that's awesome. If you didn't bring a Bible, we have Bibles in the seat pockets, or the seat racks, excuse me, um, underneath you and in front of you. Um, we, if you're joining us online, you can click the Bible tab at the top of your screen and click 1 Corinthians 15. So before we jump into a time of prayer, I want to just have you take a moment to think about Can you think of different dates in your life, different calendar dates in your life in which you knew maybe at the moment or maybe looking back that things would just be completely different? It changed so much of who you are. So the first one that we might think of is, you know, our birthday. So my birthday, July 7th, 1984. And I just remember, well, I don't remember any of it because it was my birthday. So um, then I remembered certain dates like September 20th, 2003. That was the day that I gave my life to the Lord, that I realized who I was and I needed Jesus' help in my life. That I repented and I came back to him and I verbalized my faith. I remember May 9th, 2004, when I was baptized and my wife, Steph, who was not my wife at the time, baptized me. I remember June 25th, 2006, when Stephanie became my wife and being able to celebrate that. And I remember November 27th, 2011, the day that I became a dad, that I'd met Shaylen, and my whole world changed. And we have these dates in our lives that whether we know it at the time or not, we look back and say, I became something or someone different. You know, I became someone who was able to become, was able to be a husband, or to be a dad, or to be a Christ follower, a child of God. And to be able to recognize that these dates are so important. And some of you have those dates, some of you don't, some of you are on that journey still. And, and if I may be really um, forthright off the top, some of you are struggling because maybe you want to be able to be a spouse or you want to be a parent. And that, there's, there's tension in that because maybe you're longing for something, but it hasn't come to fruition yet. And so, wherever you are, if you're in a place where you're, you're in a place of grieving or struggle today, know that the cross of Christ and the resurrection of Jesus is big enough to be able to meet you in the midst of that, that we can live in the tension of what we long for but is not yet, and we live in that with a hope, a confident, expectant hope. Not a hope that's like a a wishful feeling, like, oh, I hope that I get to have tacos later, but like a hope that is confident, that is assured, and it's because of the fact of who Jesus is, that he is an anchor and a hope for our souls. And so as we enter into this time, maybe you might be thinking through some of these dates when you became something or someone different because of what that date looked like. And maybe, just maybe, for some of us today can become one of those dates as well. Let's pray as we get ready to receive what God has for us in his word. Heavenly Father, I thank you for each person who's part of our service today, whether they're live in person, live online, watching or listening later throughout the week. And Lord, I pray God, that each person who hears my voice, if they know and learn nothing else from our time together, Lord, I pray that they would have an overwhelming sense of the love that you have for them. Not that they have to earn it, or not that we can deserve it, but the fact that we can receive it because, God, you are a giver of good gifts, and you breathe life into each person who hears my voice now, that each person has value and is loved and prayed for and cared for. And, God, I pray that you would make that known to your people today, to the people that are here that you formed and that you brought them here. I believe each person who's part of our service is someone exa- is exactly who you want to be a part of it, is someone who's created by you, loved by you, that Jesus died for, and that the Holy Spirit would want to draw one step closer to you this morning. So I pray that I would decrease, that you would increase, that you would speak in a personal, powerful, impactful way to each and every one of us. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As I mentioned, if you want to start turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're actually going to start with a verse in John 1 as our framework, but 1 Corinthians 15 is where we're going to unpack the text together in a little while. Now, I want to mention that um, over the past couple of weeks, I uh, started listening. Do we have any audiobook listeners, people that love to be able to listen to books while you're driving, while you're working, while you're doing whatever? Awesome. Hopefully, you're not listening to one now, because I can hear you. No. Um, But... (laughs) If you're an audiobook listener, I've been listening to uh, two books recently by Lee Strobel. One of them is called The Case for Easter, and the one is called The Case for Christ. And it's not because I wasn't sure, it's because I wanted to be able to present. And so these two books, I would say if you are someone who's on your journey, whether you already had a relationship with God, maybe you've stepped back, and maybe Easter, this is kind of your first step back into the foray of being able to being interested in seeing what God might have for you in your life. That's, that's incredible, and we're so glad that you are here with us. And these might be some resources, and there's others if you want to. I, I can give you more, but here are a couple resources that might be beneficial that could be able to help support some of the case here. And then the idea is Lee Strobel was someone that he went on his own personal search when his um, wife gave her life to the Lord um, in about 1979. And he starts going through this research of figuring out is Jesus real? Like, are the, are the Gospels reliable? Is there any evidence for anything that we believe or what it looks like? And so he takes a year and nine months in order to unpack and to study and to look. And he was a crime reporter in Chicago. So he had this mindset of looking at it as like, what is the evidence for this case? And if we are able to put this case before a jury or a judge, how would we rule or how would we see it? And so he talks about this that he studied from for, again, about— Oh, well over a year and a half. And he gets to this point where he said, there's one verse that was the last verse, his verbiage. This is the last verse I ever read as an atheist, as someone who was far from God, who didn't believe in God. And it's this verse from John chapter one, verse 12. It's after he did all this research and he looked at the way the case and the evidence for Christ. And he said, if I believe this to be true, then this changes everything and he looked at the evidence and said it's not just this blind faith it's looking at the evidence and, and navigating that and so this is the last verse that lee strobel shares that he read or that he ever read with the perspective of an atheist and it's this john 1 12, yet to all who did receive him to those who believed in his name he gave the right to become children of god And so this is what he said. He's talked about how in this section here, John, the gospel writer, one of the best friends of Jesus, he talks about how incredible Jesus is, that the word was God and the word was with God. And then he says, and then the word became flesh and his name is Jesus. And so he talks about how Jesus was full of grace and truth and how he spoke the truth in love and how he was able to show people that he truly was the Messiah and that he truly has risen again. And so he said, if you receive him and those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We're going to use this as our framework this morning to unpack three different aspects of the statement. And then to be able to unpack it through 1 Corinthians 15. The first part we look at is this idea that to those who believed in his name. So this idea of belief. What does that look like? We, what does that mean for us? What is it that Christians believe about the gospel? Some of you known this your whole life. Some of you, you're searching. Some of you are in a place where you're not sure you believe it. And again, wherever you are on your journey, we are so thankful that you would spend some time with us this morning as we unpack it together. So the first idea here is just this idea of belief. And so... What is it that Christians believe? What is it that we look at and say, this is what the gospel is. This is the story of salvation, and here's what it means. And if I were to put these statements in very um, hopefully simple and, and memorable terms that I got from another book, it talks about this. The first step, things that we believe, is that God loves us. God loves us. God loves you Before you were even born, he formed you and shaped you and knows the hairs on your head and he knows the cries of your heart. He knows you and he knows exactly the plans that he has for your life. Not that your life is always going to be easy, but that he would always want you to know how much he loves you in the midst of it. And we see this in the beginning of time that God created the heavens and the earth and he created people. And after every step of creation, he says, and it was good and it was good and God made man and it was good. And then he said, it is not good that man was alone. And then he made woman and said, it is very good. So women, you are the crown of God's creation. And so it's this idea of acknowledging the fact that God loves us. We were designed and created to have a personal relationship with God. And if if there was never any sin, if there was never any heartache, we would be able to live in this perpetual relationship, personal relationship with God for eternity. But the second step of that is not just that God loves us, it's the fact that we blew it. That there is sin in this world. And I know we might say, well, I wasn't the one that sinned. I wasn't the one that started that. And we believe that when Adam and Eve, and they took the fruit that was forbidden, it was this idea of them thinking, there's no consequence for my actions, so it doesn't matter, no one's going to get hurt. And then they thought, well, I could be the one to determine what's right and wrong. Because the enemy said, you will surely not die if you eat of that fruit. And then said you would be able to have your eyes be opened and be like God. So we still believe this idea that there's no consequence when we sin. And then we believe the idea that we can be the determiners of right and wrong. We are the ones that there's no objective truth. It's all subjective truth. And because of that, we think, well, then that's my truth. That's not your truth. But but there's actual objective truth about who God is, about how we are to live, about his love for us. And some of those objective truths is the idea that he loves us, but that we are all people who fall short. We all have sin in our lives. And as much as we want to bury it or hide it or pretend it doesn't exist, we all have it. And if that was the end of the story, friends, if the end of the story stopped here, we'd be in a perpetual love relationship that we were created to have with God for eternity. If the story ended here, we would eternally be separated from God because of our sin thanks be to God, but it doesn't end here. Because God loves us. We blew it. We all have sin. We all fall short. And then Jesus paid for it. Jesus paid for it. The, the, the wages that we had put together, the, the, the cost of our sin, Jesus covered that cost. He paid for that cost. And this is where I wanna unpack because when we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're gonna land here for the majority of our time together. Because as we look at 1 Corinthians 15, we start to read what Paul talks about. He's, he's already talked about the love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13, he talked about worship and instructions for worship in 1 Corinthians 14. And then we see 1 Corinthians 15 and the, the whole 58 verses, I believe it is, are talking about the importance of the resurrection. The importance of what it means, and and he talks about, not in the passage we're going to read today, but he talks about this idea that the resurrection isn't true. That that means that we are still without hope. And if we are still without hope, we are still in this place where we have blown it and there's no way out. And so he said, this is why it's so vital for us to grasp, to understand, and to personalize and make our own the story of salvation and the idea that Jesus paid for our sins. All of your sins, all of my sins, all of the sins, past, present, future, throughout all of time were put upon his shoulder on Good Friday. And he he took all of it upon himself. And when he breathed his last and said, it is finished, he knew that he had fulfilled the sacrifice. That he was able to take our place. And that because of that, we are welcomed into a relationship with God the Father through God the Son, Jesus Christ. So... When we get into 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is creating this argument. He's saying, this is why the resurrection is so important. This is why it's so vital for us to be aware of. And this is how it can change our lives. So we're going to start. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2, and then we're going to have on the screen, starting in verse 3. So 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 1, says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, Which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you believed in vain. Then we start here in verse 13. For what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance. Now, here's what I'm gonna do over the next several moments. I'm gonna take these, these passages of scripture, we're gonna highlight a few different points. And so we're going to read through it slowly, but as we start to lay out the the meaning of it and what it looks like, hopefully by the end of it, we'll see the impact and importance of the resurrection. So what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Here's what's important for us to be aware of, is that Paul wrote this in approximately 53 AD. And so this was about 20 years after Christ died. And so Paul is writing this to the letter of Corinthians. It's the first one he wrote. He wrote another one later. But there's a certain thing that maybe you and I might miss because we're not fully aware of how um, uh, some verbiage in the Greek that points us to something. That when it says, for when he writes, when I received, I passed on to you, that is a... um, uh, it's a formula or it's an introduction to saying, this is not just my thoughts about things. This is not Paul's opinion about what Jesus has done and who he is and why it's important. This is Paul quoting an early creed, an early faith statement from the apostles from even before 53 AD. And, and here's what one of the commentators says. If we go to the next slide, it says this in verses three through eight. Paul succinctly sets forth the essential matters that are of first importance or foremost or top priority that he himself received and passed on to the Corinthians. This is the earliest creedal formulation the church possesses from AD 53. Since it has been received by Paul, it is shared not just by Paul and the Corinthians, but by all Christians. So this is what Paul's doing. He's saying, you've heard this statement about who Jesus is and I'm going to pass it on to you and I received it and I received this as something that is a true statement and I'm going to pass it on to you. And so it would be saying that this is a quotation. This, this section's go ahead and go to the next slide, that what we're about to read is something that Christians from within the first 20 years at the latest had already memorized, passed on, received, and kept passing on. These are not Paul's thoughts. These are not his opinions. These are things that from the very beginning, the disciples and apostles who were there with Jesus and who saw him rise to new life and saw him be able to share and to eat with them and to do life with them after he rose back from the dead, they were able to say, no, this is true. And so we might think of things like, well, how do we know the gospels aren't, aren't legends? How do we know that it's not something that someone wrote hundreds of years later in order to, to mythologize or to make a legend out of Jesus? That maybe Jesus was just a good teacher that his followers were like, no, 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 let's, 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 let's make him God and, and that way it'll be great. So legends take decades if not centuries to develop. So what we're reading here, if you were to ask a scholar of ancient historical documents, they would say, if you have a source, if you have concrete evidence of a creed that was passed on from within the first decade, couple decades, at the latest, the veracity or the truth of it would be without question. But this is what early Christians believed. Now, what did they believe? Number one that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that when we talk about how Jesus paid for it, he died for our sins. He took all those sins, past, present, future, all the things that you've done, all the things that you're doing, and all the things you're going to do. If I may take it a step further, all the things you should have done and didn't, all the things you should be doing and don't, and all the things that we should do but won't. Past, present, future, he died for those sins. And when it says, according to the scriptures, it's pointing back to the Old Testament. And one of the main passages that we would look at is this idea of the suffering servant from Isaiah 52, verse 13, through Isaiah 53, verse 12. And part of that talks about how Jesus was, or the suffering servant, doesn't call him by name by Jesus yet, but the suffering servant was pierced for our transgressions, that the weight of all of our iniquities was upon him, and that he would die that I was um, talking with someone, or or I was reading recently rather, this idea that there was someone who grew up in a Jewish background and had never read Isaiah 53 before. And then when he did, he just was, he had this moment and realized this is describing Jesus. I never saw this in the Old Testament or or in regards to as a Jewish person in in my scriptures. That's how he would perceive it. Because we call it the Old Testament, but to them it's the Tanakh, it's the Holy Scriptures of Jewish people. And so it's this idea of, I never saw that before. But now that I have, I can't not see that it's showing that the Messiah would actually die and would lay down his life to bear the iniquities of God's people and that he would be pierced for our transgression. So when we see the nails in, in his feet and in his hand, when we see this, the spear that pierced his side and we realize it was a fulfillment of the scriptures that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. That's the first part. And, and let me be real quick. This, this word right here, that, that you're going to see here, here, here. I feel like I'm Vanna White. Like, I'm like here and here. But anyway, sorry. Um, when you see that, that, that's the word hati in the Greek. And it can be used as a, the word that. And it's also one that introduces quotations. It introduces saying that this is what someone else has said. And so being able to say that when he's doing this, Greeks didn't have punctuation marks. And so, one way of looking at it is that when this word that is introduced in these four sections, it's like saying, This is what I received from you, this is what I pass on to you, and I'm quoting it to you now that Christ died for uh, our sins according to the scriptures. That's not all, though. The next one is that, that he was buried. Now, maybe you're like me and you think, Okay, this seems super important. Like the fact that Christ died, that is vitally important to our faith to recognize that. Why does it emphasize very early on that he was buried? Well, it's important for us to be aware of because there is a theory that has come around called the swoon theory. The swoon theory is the idea that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross, but that he passed out, that he swooned and fell to the side. And because of that, that he wasn't actually dead. So the idea that he did actually die, and the case for Christ um, has a doctor who gives a perspective of what Jesus went through in those last days. And how there's no possible way he could have just swooned and passed out. That it is unequivocally, without question, that Jesus did actually die. But it's important for us to know that he was buried. Why? Because it means a couple of things. The first thing it shows us is the fact that there was an actual tomb that was an actual location that people could have actually known and could have actually seen where the tomb was. At Joseph of Arimathea, he purchased the tomb, and they knew where that would be. It also shows us the fact that he was buried it means that the tomb was closed. There wasn't a way out. He was actually in there, sealed, shut. And according to the Matthew Gospel, it talks about there were guards that were put outside to make sure that the disciples wouldn't steal the body, because that's another theory we hear, that, oh, Jesus' disciples, they, they stole his body, and then they claimed it was a resurrection. And we'll unpack in a couple moments why that, loses, that argument loses strength. But for our point here, it's saying that this was an actual place. He was actually buried. It was actually more than just one night. He didn't just swoon and fall out and faint. He died and was buried. In other words, in the eyes of the disciples, at that moment when he was buried, hope that he was the Messiah was lost. They were on the losing team. They had to run for fear of the Jews, as it says in John chapter 20. They they were so at a point when their their hopes were buried along with Christ's body. But here's where we continue on. He was actually buried— they knew where it was, and they could have gone at any time. If, if this was not true, they would have found a way to say, oh, well, here's how the disciples stole it, or here's what happened. And in the Matthew 27 version, the, dis, the, the guards at the tomb, they get paid off. They say the body was gone. We saw an angel, then everything happened. And then all of a sudden, they, the, the Jewish people say, okay, we're going to pay you to, for you to say, for you to spread the rumor that the disciples stole the body. And that's how, in Matthew's version, it says this is how that story has been perpetuated to this day. So what actually happened? He was buried. Did the disciples steal his body? No. The next thing is that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. That he was bodily raised. That this was not a swoon theory. He did actually die. He was actually buried, and he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. If, if this did not truly happen, If the resurrection didn't happen, where does the faith in Jesus come from? Like, how does that happen? We see that Jesus shared the idea that the Son of Man is going to have to die. He is going to have to, on the third day, rise again. And so when he came out of that tomb, recognized the tomb that was buried that showed us it was concrete, that tomb was rolled away. Friends, the tomb wasn't rolled away because Jesus didn't have a way to get out. The tomb was rolled away to reveal to us that it was empty. That the, the angel moves it aside and to say, you could go in for yourself and look. He is not here. He is risen. And he says, then go tell people. That's how the, the angels start telling them. And so he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, that Jesus proclaims. this when he would apply Old Testament passages to himself and say, this is what the Son of Man has to experience He's going to bear the weight of the whole world on his shoulders. And then he's going to rise up, and it's going to change everything. And he's referring to himself there in the third person. And so the next part. And then this this last that, this last hati here, is he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Cephas is um, the word for Peter, so it's another name for Peter. And so here's what it's saying. If Jesus didn't really rise on the third day, well— then what happened with Peter and the 12? Peter and the 12 they were hit they were locked away for fear of the Jews. What changed in their lives? What changed so that they went from a group of small a small group of believers whose Messiah and whose Christ and whose leader and the one they loved most had just been killed on Friday that they were buried and then all of a sudden what changed? He appeared to them. This is an eyewitness testimony type explanation to say What changed in the disciples' life to get to the point where then they would boldly proclaim with no worldly gain available to them? It's not like they came out and said, okay, if we proclaim Jesus is Lord and that he rose from the dead after three days, well, then, well then we're going to get more money. We're going to be able to have nicer homes. We're going to be able to have like the really nice donkeys, like, you know, like the Teslas ones that are like hybrids. And then we're going to be able to have all this so fame and power. And, and people are going to look to us and be like, wow, those are the ones who are with Jesus. Let's acknowledge and respect them. Friends, by proclaiming this gospel, they were martyred and tortured. They had no worldly gain and reason to proclaim that Jesus had died. And then had, well, they knew that, that why he rose again. So the fact that he appeared to Peter, the one who had betrayed him and denied him three times, he appeared to him and he restored him, saying, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? The fact that he appeared to the 12 in the upper room in John chapter 20, and even when Thomas, who wasn't there, came back in the next week, he's like, I'll believe it when I see it with my own eyes, and I can touch his hands and his side. He appeared to the 12. These 12 became bold proclaimers of Jesus Christ. And the gospel they shared was this, that he died died for our sins. He was buried, and he was raised on the third day. See, nothing would have changed their lives as much as seeing the risen Christ. Why? Well, we know that people die for their faith all the time. People die for the faith even if it's not Christianity. They, they die for their own faith. And they die for their faith, why? Because they believe with all their hearts that it is true. And they are willing to face death and torture with, because they believe with all their hearts that it is true. Friends, if Cephas, if Peter and the twelve did not actually meet Jesus, who was resurrected? If other faith religions, people died for something they believed to be true, do we think that they would have died for something they knew to be false? Would they have laid down their lives? Would they have kept a consistent message for the decades of their lives to say, no, Jesus really lived and he really died and he was really buried and he was really raised to new life again? They were in a unique position to be able to know the veracity or the truthfulness of what they believed. Because if they had just hidden the body and they just put it away somewhere, they might for a moment have been bold, but would they have faced all the hardships that came with being an apostle? Would they have faced all that torture? Would they have faced all that that death, that ultimate sacrifice without in one instance (laughs) rescinding their beliefs? Would they have gone through that torture? No, I'm so sorry. I was just kidding. We we all colluded. We all wanted to, you know, have the Tesla donkeys, and it didn't work out, so I'm so sorry. Or is the only thing that can change a life that radically an interaction with the resurrected Christ? Friends, some of us, we've had an interaction with Jesus. We know what it's like. And for me, September 20, 2003 was the day where there was pre-Jesus in my life, and then there's my rest of my eternal life. But John seventeen three talks about eternal life is knowing God the Father and the Son whom he sent. So eternal life isn't for when we die and go to heaven. It's the moment we believe, the moment we receive who he is, and the moment we follow him. Let's continue on with the time we have remaining. Let's go to verse 6. After that. Jesus appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Let me be clear. This, that, this, that is not the, same hot, it's not the same idea of here's a quotation. Now Paul is expanding upon it saying, hey, this is what I've passed on to you. This is what I've received and I'm passing on. And then here are more of the experiences that you need to be aware of. That he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Let's, let's take a moment. Maybe some people would say, well, maybe they did think that they saw Jesus, but it was, a, it was a hallucination that happened just between one person or things like that. It's very intentional that Jesus showed himself to the twelve all at once. It's very intentional that there were 500 people all at once who received This was not a mass hallucination, a group hallucination. That doesn't happen. This is something that actually happened and they were at the same time. He continues on, most of whom are still living. Paul wrote this 20 years after Jesus' death. If any of them had questions. You don't think that those 500 people that saw Jesus alive would be telling people what they saw? And they'd be like, oh man, you know Billy? Billy down the street? Oh man, Billy knows. Billy will tell you. Now he didn't list out all 500 names, obviously, but the idea is that there are still people that can corroborate this story, that can say, no, I really did see him. This is not hundreds of years later where legend is built. This is a couple decades at the most later when there are still people who can verify what happened. So most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also. This one's important here for James. This will be my last point on this section. James, this James, is not, if you're familiar with the disciples, there's James and John who were brothers. They were both sons of a man named Zebedee. This James is not that James. James, son of Zebedee, was the first, like he he died very early on in the church movement. This James is Jesus's younger brother. And we see in John chapter seven that there are times when it says his own brothers, his own family members did not believe that he was the Messiah. We see in the other gospels, the idea that his mothers and his brothers were coming to him and say, you know, Jesus, you shouldn't be saying this. And Jesus responds by talking about the ones who do the father's will are my brothers and my mother. And so he's saying that my, my, my family in the Lord is what's important and what is not that the other family is not important, but this is how I define family, as church family. And so for the fact that he appeared to his brother, who was an open skeptic, and also derided him for his beliefs, and then this James then becomes a leader in the church. When you see in Acts chapter 15, and there's a dispute amongst the disciples, it's this James, it's Jesus' younger brother that is helping to oversee and helping to provide clarity. And so what does that mean? That means... Someone who was a hardened skeptic who knew Jesus best and was like, yeah, I can't believe you saying who you say you are. What changes even a skeptic's life? An interaction, an experience with the resurrected Jesus. He saw, no, 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 Jesus, my brother, he was who he said he was. And I always had to live in his shadow because Jesus does everything perfect, like every older sibling, but... But then there's this idea of James, like, no, no, no. He really was who he said he was. And he did what he said he'd do. And now he believes. He appeared to the apostles at the ascension. And last of all, he appeared to me also. This is Paul writing, and this refers to Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9 on the Damascus rose, which I do not have enough time to be able to unpack. But Acts chapter 9, and then he retells it in Acts 22 and Acts 26. Um, it's well worth your while to be able to experience Saul. When he was named Saul, his conversion, he became Paul. And then from that moment, there was pre-Jesus Saul who attacked Christians and went after them. And he approved of their, sacrifice, of their, of their martyrdom, of people killing them. And then there was the rest of eternal life for Paul. We don't have his date when he, the Damascus Road, but that would have been one of those markers in his life where he became someone different. So all of that, to say this, what do we believe? We believe that if we were to break down the gospel, it's this. It's that God loves us. Let's go to the next slide. We blew it. Jesus paid for it. It's not a belief that was created by legend hundreds of years later. It is a belief that changed the life of the hardened skeptics to see a resurrected Jesus that ate with them and sat with them and talked with them and lived with them and then be able to change their lives, and then they were to follow him but we must receive him. We must receive him. We can understand all of the theology and not have that change our eternal life. We see this here again, going back to John 1, verse 12. Yet to all who did receive him. This is the idea of receiving as a person. Like the receiving in, the, in 1 Corinthians, the idea of, oh, I accept this traditional idea. This idea is like, I, I receive him as a person. And again, right theology doesn't mean right relationship with God. Why? James chapter 2 talks about how, oh, James is writing, Miss James is writing, oh, you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Awesome. And that is good. So do the demons, and they shudder. You can have a right theology and understand who Jesus is and not have a right relationship with him. And so here's what a lot of faiths believe, and, and this is not... Um, To tear down, but this is to communicate. Most faiths believe that it's this idea of you have to believe in something, then you have to work really hard to achieve salvation. If you do enough, if you're good enough, if you keep all the rules enough, and if you're perfect in that, then maybe you would be able to receive and accept God's favor or the deity's favor. You have to earn it, and you have to deserve it. And so it's this idea of we, we hear all the time, okay, you have to just be a good person. Here's the thing. In in other faith dynamics, it's this idea of you must do. You must do this or do that. And that's why we look at achieve. But with our faith in Jesus, it's not about what we have to do, it's what Jesus has done. And so we receive it. It's a gift that is given, it's the gift of a person who loves us more than we can imagine. And so we can have right theology, but if we don't allow that to change our hearts and have an interaction or an experience with the resurrected Jesus, it becomes a theology box that we just say, oh, I, th- I believe the right things about him. But do you receive him in your life. So we have this idea where um, Steph and I mentioned June 25th, 2006. Uh, that was the day that we got married. We got married in Santa Clara, California. Uh, it was at a place that... Um, is now like the parking lot for the san francisco 49ers stadium so it's cool at least they're my favorite team right so i feel like yeah so but we were there beautiful beautiful ceremony um a great group of people we're able to celebrate with and here's an example of um what it was like if you you know when you go to a wedding you see that there's a moment when the the father of the bride and the bride will walk down and the groom is, is standing at the bottom and waiting and excited and it's this moment in which there's kind of that official handshake and the receiving of that dynamic. Well, here's how this moment looked at it first. Here is a picture of me. And this is the, like, this is the, I get to marry her face. Like, like I'm just so excited. And so I'm like, I'm like, okay, this is really exciting. Go to the next picture. This is my, even pastors pretend to listen sometimes because they're distracted because I'm looking at my bride, right? So I'm like, I'm listening to him say something probably really important. But I'm like, she's right there. You know, and so really excited. And then there's this moment. This is the moment where Pop, Steve, he, hand, he gives me a handshake. And we do the, you know, hand over the um, Steph's hand. And then we get to walk up and experience the rest of the ceremony. And that was a day that changed. I became a husband that day. Imagine this. Imagine going to a wedding and, and I'm sitting there and I'm standing there and Steph is there and the father of the bride, Steve, is there. They're walking down the aisle. They're sitting there and I'm looking to the pastor. I'm like, I can't believe I get to marry her. And then, and then I'm supposed to be listening to him and I just kind of like keep looking at her. Imagine it gets to the point where I believe with all my heart that she is the woman that I want to marry and I want to spend the rest of my life with. And imagine I believe it to be true. I know it to be true. And in the moment when her dad offers me her hand, I don't receive it. Imagine if I say, wow, she is she's a beautiful, I, be, I believe that she is an incredible gift and so worthwhile. And I understand intellectually all the reasons why I should. Imagine if i was just say, no, I'm good. And I just give him a fist bump and I walk out. Friends, how often do we understand who Jesus is? Maybe this is the first time, maybe you've known it for years, but we don't receive that relationship. We don't take his hand when it's extended to us and allow that to change who we are and how we live, that we become someone different when the power of the Holy Spirit through a relationship with Jesus changes everything. June 25th, 2006, I became a husband. September 20, 2003, I became a believer in Jesus. And so what does it look like here? We look at John 1, verse 12, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become Children of God. This idea of the right is also the power. He empowered people to be able to do that if you believe and you receive. So, Lee Strobel shares this very simple formula. It talks about this believe plus receive equals become. You believe and then you receive and you become a child of God. Now, this past week I received um, a couple, two uh, two different emails, I think. Um, Well, one was an email that was like, hey, Um, there's an event coming up. We want you to RSVP. Can you let us know if you're going to attend? And then I got a text from a friend about a different event. It was like, hey, I sent you this email a while ago, and um, we need a head count by Monday. So do you think you're coming, and what does that look like? And this idea, from, from this point on, you all have hopefully heard with clarity the idea that God loves us. We blew it. Jesus paid for it. But then there's this last step of we must receive him. You must accept the hand that is extended to you, the hand that still has the nail-pierced scar who's saying, this is how much I love you. Would you receive that? And so what does it look like to become, to be able to become a child of God? And this is where my previous pastor would say this, and it's this idea of how you can RSVP. You wanna respond, see if you play, or please respond to this invitation that has been laid out to all of us this morning. And he talks about this. The first thing you do is realize your need. Realize that we have sin in our lives. Realize that we cannot reach Jesus or reach God on our own. We can never do enough to love Jesus or to follow him because what's important is what's already been done through his atoning work on the cross. And so we realize that we are broken. We are at the end of ourselves. We need Jesus. Say you're sorry. And this is the idea of repentance. We talked about this in our Joel series if you've been with us the past few weeks. It's the idea of going and walking a different direction. If God is back here and Jesus is right here and we walk away saying you're sorry and repenting, that word repents that that, that seems scary when we hear it, all it means is to make a U-turn and make an about face to turn back. And we say we're sorry and we go back and walk back in relationship with God. That we talked about in James chapter four, that when we come near to him, He will come near to us. And so no matter how far down this road you've been, you say you're sorry, you turn around, you make an about face, and you start walking back, God will meet you. He'll meet you more than halfway. We say you're sorry. You verbalize your faith. You believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And then you plunge your past. And this is just a clever way to get the P in there, but it's this idea of being baptized, of acknowledging that when you realize your need. You repent. You say you're sorry. You verbalize your faith, and then you plunge your past, and you get baptized, showing that you say, I am dying with Christ, and I'm going to be raised to new life. And that's what our sermon is here about today. It's the Easter, and it's just called Raised to Life. That's what Jesus did. That's what he invites us to do now. Will you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, I thank you for each person who's part of our service today, Lord. I pray that you would um, meet us where we are. God, whether we are people who've known you for years, whether we're people who've followed you and have starts and stops, and, and maybe we're in a place where we're in a little bit of a valley and we don't really believe or we don't really think that faith is viable. God, whether we're people that maybe you're just taking hold of us for the first time on this Easter morning. Lord, I pray that as we look at different dates throughout my life and as we would look and see that April 9th, 2023 might be one of those dates for someone here this morning or for someone watching. God, that they would be able to see and realize their need for you. That there's nothing they could do or achieve because it's already been done. That we say we're sorry, we repent, we turn back to you when maybe we've spent our whole lives walking away from you. That we verbalize our faith, that we confess that you are Lord. And we believe it in our hearts. And then, Lord, would we take that step to plunge our past and to be able to get baptized, to symbolize, and to show that this, it's like a wedding. This is who I want to spend my life with, following you, Jesus. And I'm accepting your nail-pierced hand. And I receive who you are in my life. So, Father, we thank you for this time. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you are speaking in a way that only you can to draw us close to you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
0: Thank you for listening to the podcast. We want to be a church where people are changed by God to change the world. If you want to partner with us in this way, you can start by doing these two things. The first, if you haven't subscribed to this podcast, you can do that by hitting the subscribe button wherever you're listening, so you can stay connected with us and we can broaden our reach. And the second, and this might be the most important thing you do, Share this message with someone you know. And as always, remember, you are prayed for, cared for, and loved. See you next time.